Hi, everybody. How you doing tonight? A little more energy, please. There we go. Oh, it's raining. I know. It's so sad. Um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, again, I'm Dan Butchko, founder and CEO of Playcrafting. Um, some of you might have seen that in the past month, we've started experimenting with some new kinds of events for our community. And so uh, when Evangeline and I were thinking about different kinds of uh, events and talks and whatnot to put together, we were really inspired by Inside the Actors Studio and James Lipton and wanted to start putting together some events that were more uh, conversations with super well-known, very, very talented uh, designers, directors, et cetera. And who better to start that with than Sam Barlow? So let me introduce him to you, for anybody that doesn't know him. Uh, Sam Barlow is a director and writer known for games that push the boundaries of interactive narrative. With Silent Hill Shattered Memories, he created a classic that psychologically profiled its players. In Her Story, perhaps his best-known game, he reinvented the detective genre for the YouTube generation. That game, of course, garnered him the 2015 Game Award for Best Narrative, the 2016 BAFTA Games Award for Mobile and Handheld, for, mobile and handheld um, for Innovation, and Best Debut Game. His next game is the hotly anticipated Telling Lies uh, with Annapurna Interactive, a spiritual successor to Her Story. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Sam Barlow. Come on up. All right. Hey. In the hot seat. This feels really, I don't know, it feels bad having a whole thing just about you. I'm going to pretend this was a panel and the other two had to cancel because of the rain. Okay, Sorry. that works. And perhaps during the Q&A we can ask the audience some things too, not just up here. Sure. Cool. All right. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Sam Barlow, right in the beginning, how did you start getting into games? Playing them or making them? Which came first? <laughs> I was one of those kids uh, who, like in England, um, where we had like the 8-bit computers, you had like your Spectrums, your Commodores. I had the Amstrad CPC which was the least cool of yeah, those. what the hell is that? <laughs> like, the Commodore had cool music, and, and the Rockstar devs, the Spectrum was, like, the one that everyone had. The Amstrad CPC was made by Alan Sugar, who ran Amstrad Holding, and he was, like, our Trump. He literally, he did uh, The Apprentice, I think, before it happened over here. So he's kind of tied into that whole thing. Um, but my parents bought it for me because uh, they thought it had more educational software. Uh, which was the promise on the box. Um, and it did. It had like a hangman game and a math game alongside all the other crap. Um, so I had one of those, and like I was saying to someone the other day, um, I never really made the decision to pursue a career in, in games or interactive storytelling because it was a bit like from the moment I started thinking about being creative or making stuff for myself or having interesting ideas, I was already messing around on computers. And it was easier, rather than write a short story, it was easier for me to knock out a weird little program and share that with my friends. Um, so I was kind of doing all that stuff. And like at high school, uh, me and my friends would exchange games that we'd make just for each other. Um, so I'd make these weird text adventures that were all about my friends trying to get laid um, 
and you would like play them and at every kind of turn they would try and get laid and fail spectacularly. Um, so I was kind of getting into this idea of, of, of like these interactive stories where there's a slightly more adversarial or interesting relationship between the, the, the game and the protagonist and the people playing them. Um, but yeah, I was kind of doing all that stuff, but never really thought about making a living making video games. Um, never really, I didn't really, because we had like the Rockstar games people back then. There were like the Oliver Twins who made the Dizzy games and stuff in England. And so I knew that someone was making video games, but it still felt like something that just arrived fully formed. So I didn't realize you could have a job making video games. Um, so it was only after an aborted career as a dot-com person um, in like the early 2000s, uh, which was in DC, uh, that all went horribly wrong um, with crashing stock prices and redundancies. Um, I headed back to England and was looking for work and no one would give me any. And I had a friend who actually had become a programmer at a video games company. And he was like, hey, you do art. Because I'd done a lot of painting and, and things like that. And he was like, you could be a video game artist. So I downloaded a cracked copy of, I think, Maya and something else, put together a, a video games portfolio, which luckily no longer exists on the internet. And, and this was just early enough that no one was capturing all this shit. So this does not exist. No one can see this terrible portfolio that I sent to every video games company in the UK. And that got me my first job as an artist working on the GameCube version of Serious Sam, which was like a fun first-person shooter, very deep storytelling. Um, <laughs> I actually remember the, the producer on that project um, to write the script for that game decided, and this, this is obviously a different time, um, the, the idea was to have a party where they provided the drink and drugs and during this party, we would come up with the storyline and the script for this game. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the thing. <laughs> that was before people were bringing in Hollywood scriptwriters to fix these things. And, and so the entire path up until Serious Sam, everything that you were working on in terms of games with your friends or um, just like side projects, everything was self-taught. Yes, yeah, no, I, the, the least cool thing about me is that my favorite birthday present ever was the MaxAm compiler for the Amstrad CPC, which was the piece of software. If you wanted to do assembly coding on your 8-bit computer, you had to get this special, really uncool piece of software to do it. Uh, so yeah, it was, I was like reading the magazines, and you'd type in the programs and stuff. And then I was like, oh, I guess if I want to do cool stuff, I need to learn assembly. So I ordered this program and never really got very far. I used to like do cool sprites. Um, and then like at university, I discovered the internet. And on the internet, the, at that point, the only game you could download within like a reasonable human lifespan was a, a text game. Like if you wanted to download a real 3D game or a game with art, it would take you like 48 hours. Um, but a, a little text game would, you could, Open, you know, go into the computer lab and within five minutes you could have a cool game and go play it. Um, and I discovered the kind of interactive fiction community of like the 90s, which was really cool. It was 
uh, a whole bunch of people who had a kind of nostalgic affection for the games of like Infocom and Magnetic Scrolls, um, these kind of really cool text games. But they also were very ambitious in wanting to do interesting new things and take things in creative directions. So we were all working off these cool tools that people were creating and sharing to make games in the style of the classic text games. Um, but everyone was trying to do kind of far more interesting stuff. It was, it was a kind of um, uh, competition between people to kind of do more interesting things or kind of play around with, with structure and, and those sorts of things. And is that where Isle was born? Yes, yeah. I So a feature of this community, so again, like this was, I guess, uh, in the late 90s. Um, there's this community of people and we're all making weird, interesting text games and no one has any ambition to make money. Every now and then, someone would pop up that would be like, hey, we can make text adventures great again. We can start charging money for these things. And everyone was like, that's done. We'd, we've moved beyond that. Um, but there was an annual competition, which was kind of the thing that would incentivize people to actually finish their projects. Um, and every year, there would be kind of really cool, interesting projects that would appear as part of this competition. And I tried to make an interesting, cool project, um, and then the disk like, got corrupted the week before submission, and so I tried to recreate it, uh, and I submitted this kind of semi-crappy uh, project called The City, which, eh, it was, it was this kind of pretentious thing. It wasn't great. Um, and it got, like, okay reviews from people playing it. So I came out of that being like, oh, I feel publicly ashamed that I <laughs> released this thing. Uh, I want to go and do something much more interesting. Uh, and... Yeah, so I made this game, Isle, um, which was an interesting game. Uh, it's a text game which takes place in the pasta aisle of a supermarket, a grocery store. And it has a 132 different endings or something, um, but each play session is very short. So you'll type something saying what should happen next, and then the game will kind of finish that thought for you. Um, and by putting together all these different disparate stories, some of which kind of exist in different realities, you kind of piece together the story. Um, but that came out of, I had this frustration with, at this point, we, we had all these people trying to do really interesting artistic things. Um, so you had people like Andrew Plotkin made this game so far, which people were kind of saying was this Bergman-esque fantasy, and it was this game about, uh, longing and love and was, was kind of super interesting and uh, people like Adam Cadre were doing super cool interesting things. He'd made this game Photopeer which was this interesting tragedy about this teenage girl that was very formally inventive. Um, so people were doing all these interesting things but we still had this kind of nostalgic connection back to the classic text games. And one of the things about those games is your first five to ten minutes of playing, you kind of fuck around a bit with the passer and you kind of kick in the tires to see you know, how well implemented has this game uh, been done. Like, So you start typing dumb stuff. So you're introduced to an important character and you might try and kill them or kiss them. Um, you know, If you see something, you might try and eat something entirely inedible. And in the tradition of those games, uh, and you see it in all the LucasArts games as well, right? there's this kind of playful 
slightly abrasive witticisms you expect. So if I tried to kiss someone that I should not be kissing, I would get a funny answer. And even these, these very ambitious games uh, would have to cater to this stuff. And I would hate myself because even hating the idea of it, I would play these games where I'm supposed to be immersing myself in these more interesting dramatic scenarios and I would still be typing the dumb stuff. And I hated that. Uh, so the idea of Isle was, what if I made a game that when someone types the dumb thing, says, okay, let's run with that. What kind of story would it be if you did X, Y, Z? Um, and so the premise was, what's the most boring kind of kitchen sink location? It was like, oh, it's, it's the aisle of a grocery store. Um, I believe it was the pasta aisle, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. So yeah, if you uh, attempt to kiss a stranger in the aisle of a pasta, the, the, the pasta aisle, obviously that is not a normal thing to do, and so that implies a much darker story. Um, so the interesting thing with that was, that was kind of the premise. Of, it was this very you know, abstract idea of like, this thing pisses me off. I want to do something with that, um, and here is this interesting constraint. Um, and in developing that and then testing it with people, there's a kind of arc to that game where initially you might type all the dumb stuff and realize that like, oh, here's this game that's going to cater to everything I can type and you sort of want to push and, and try what's the most extreme, silly thing I can type. And as you get these darker stories and you pick up information that is not contained in the start, so you might see character names and things mentioned. Um, after a while, you start to then step back and be like, well, how can I bring about something more positive in this scenario? And you can then kind of try harder to come up with what actions could take place in this scenario that would actually give me a nice story or give me a happy ending. And it, it kind of gives you this fun arc for most people um, where they kind of dig into the themes and the idea of the story and bring about something more positive. And, and that was back in the day where <clears throat> you could not hyper-automate the creation of all those options. And that was very much a uh, just pick a couple words, put it in, and hope for the best or see what would happen. Um, how many different uh, like pathways did you have in there? I think you mentioned 138. And There's something like that. Yeah, I were, were there branching pathways, or it was just entry, ending, no, it was, entry ending? And it, it's a, on one hand, it was very simple. And those, another thing I was struggling with was those uh, those text game engines at that time were your best bet if you wanted to simulate something. Um, so this was like, I guess, around the time, things like uh, Thief the Dark Project, Ultra Underworld, like Looking Glass were doing the early immersive sims, um, and we had like very early 3D environments. Uh, but the levels of simulation in those things were reasonably simple. Whereas there were people in the text world, um, because obviously the visual fidelity is a lot more straightforward, like we could simulate a lot of stuff. So there were people who were obsessed with like fluid simulations. So you would play their games and be like, oh, I can move bits of fluid between different containers and this cloth can be various stages of wet and, you know, just all these kind of pointlessly simulated things. Uh, and so in making Isle, building it in that world, it was interesting because it basically the game would finish after one turn so that I didn't have to track or deal with the causality of anything. Um, so I could just accept pretty much anything and go in all sorts of different directions. So it was kind of, uh, on one hand it was 
super engaging with that idea because you could type anything and it would work. But at the same time, I didn't actually have to deal with the kind of world building consequences of it. And Isle and, and Serious Sam are obviously <laughs> very, very different games. Um, but chronologically, it was uh, Isle was number one, Serious Sam was number two. How exactly did you go from making this one game, this small text-based game on your own, to the world of Serious Sam? So, yeah, I mean, when I made Isle, like I say, the, the community there was not, um, had no ambitions to be commercial or to make any money from this thing. And I was not thinking that interactive storytelling would be a thing that I could do outside of it being a hobby. And like at the time I was, I was painting as well and I was writing terrible novels. Um, and, and like partly this is like my background I come from like a working class background in England. Uh, my dad was the first person to go to university. Uh, he was a civil engineer, which is, uh, sorry if my dad's listening to this, but like the least interesting and to any civil engineers in the audience. Like it's not a very sexy job. Um, and so I was hugely encouraged as a bright young child to think of the sciences and a sensible career. So it had never been suggested to me that like a, a job, a career in the arts or anything creative existed. Um, so yeah, I was doing, yeah, I was noodling around doing all this stuff and it was super fun and I was spending more of my time doing that than I was focusing on my degree. Um, and so I never made that connection. It was only years later when this friend of mine was like, hey, I'm working for a game studio that I was like, oh, okay. That would be fun. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I joined as an artist. And I think in like a matter of a few months, I'd been moved to the design team because I wouldn't shut up in meetings. <laughs> and then a little bit after that, I was made a lead designer because I still wouldn't shut up. <laughs> They're like, if we put him in charge, maybe. Um, and then at, at some point, um, made a bunch of, of reasonably mediocre video games. And, but, you know, all great learning experiences and we put together a great team. Um, we made this, uh, this game Ghost Rider, which was a, a movie tie-in for the Nicolas Cage superhero movie. Um, Academy and, Award winning. And I saw an interview with Nicolas Cage where they said, what's the f your favorite thing you've made? What's your favorite movie? And he said, Ghost Rider. Mm. And I was like, eh. Um, we had, the team on that game got taken to, a, it wasn't the premiere premiere, but it was like, we got taken to the, the slightly fancy screening in London. And we were taken in this limo, but 10 minutes into, and it was a, like a long journey from where our studio was to the, the movie theater. 10 minutes into the journey, uh, they'd run out of booze. <laughs> so it was this. This uh, this you know two hour limousine ride of, of very thirsty, not at all drunk game developers, and then we got there and watched this movie which was terrible, and then had a two hour ride back knowing that there was no booze in the limo, and there were two limos, and then one of the limos broke down on the motorway, and they had to walk for two hours to the nearest, <laughs> like it was it was horrible, um, but yeah I mean that and that that was that project was so weird, um, like if I. There was at no point a conscious effort by me to do anything with my career. All these are beautiful random events. Um, so the Ghost Rider game came about because Majesco in the US 
uh, was a video games company, and they had got the exclusive rights to sell the Pokemon cartoons on Game Boy cartridges. So this was like a big thing. If you're a kid and you loved Pokemon and Netflix didn't exist and you didn't have a DVD player, you could buy the Pokemon cartoons on a cartridge and watch them on your Game Boy. And they made a lot of money selling this and so they had all this cash and they were like, well, now we're going to be a proper game studio. And so they bought the rights to this huge superhero movie that Sony were making, Ghost Rider, that was going to be the big summer hit. They bought the rights to uh, The Darkness, which actually ended up being a really cool game. Um, and then they bought the rights to this uh, sci-fi trilogy, Advent Rising. It was, I think, Orson Scott Card that was going to be the Halo killer. It's going to be the Halo killer. And <laughs> some ways into us working on this Ghost Rider game, uh, they started running out of money, realized this strategy wasn't going to work. So they packaged it up with the darkness and sold it to 2K. And I think like three days after this deal was completed and we were now making this game for 2K, Sony decided to move Ghost Rider from their big summer slot to be a February movie. And at this point, no superhero movie had ever been released in February. And this was clearly a terrible... <laughs> Terrible thing. And so they slashed our budget. Uh, we had Wolverine in it at one point, and they told us to remove him, but we didn't have the money to properly remove him. So there are cutscenes in that game where Ghost Rider is, walks into a bar to talk to Wolverine. And, and like in the original, uh, I think Wolverine lights his cigar on his flame, and they fight some demons and do some stuff. Uh, in the shipped game, Ghost Rider just <laughs> pulls up to this bar, steps out, cut to all these dead demons everywhere. And then he just kind of leaves. Um, so yeah, we had, we had fun on that project. But <laughs> the cool thing about it was, at simultaneously, uh, a sister studio of ours in LA was somehow working on a Silent Hill game, um, which was very much an LA thing of like people knowing people. And they had got this, this cool gig. Um, but they were using an experimental in-house game engine which um, didn't work. <laughs> uh, and six months into the project, it still didn't work. And so it was getting very problematic for showing milestone builds to Konami um, that there was no functioning game engine. So the, that team came and spent a week with my team. And we basically, in a week, put together a demo of a Silent Hill game using our Ghost Rider tech. Uh, and, and was that the beginnings of Silent Hill Origins? Kind of. I mean, this, so this project was Silent Hill Origins that they were working on. Um, and they went away. A few more months later, uh, it still hadn't actually progressed beyond our demo. And so questions were being asked. Uh, me and, and so I worked with this great lead artist, Neil Williams, and we were both huge Silent Hill fans. And we were getting really pissed off at this point because we were like, why did these people get to make a Silent Hill game? And they're, they're not great. And we would love to, and we've worked so hard, and we've had to work on these crap games like Ghost Rider. And the one before it that you thankfully didn't mention called Crusty Demons of Dirt. Yeah, I did mention it. Um, <laughs> and we started looking at what they were doing in their design documents, and uh, not to speak ill of the dead, but like this thing was a huge fuck up. So Silent Hill Origins was a prequel to a classic video game. Uh, and there were little things that made us question what was happening. 
like uh, in the original game, there is a character who is, I think, technically 14 years old. And so this prequel, which is set seven years prior, she looks like she's 16. And there's a, a Dr. Kaufman character who is, I don't know, in like his, say, 40s in the original game. And in the prequel, he's this 70-year-old graying man talking about quantum theory. And there are zombies walking the streets. And and we were like, what the fuck? We're like, Silent Hill is really important to us. It's like this really cool fucking franchise. And this thing's horrible. Like, how's this happening? And we're like, I don't know. Um, and the bosses were like, well, Konami seem happy. And we were like, can you just check? We're like, just check, because we don't think this is very good. And they went and checked, and they came and they said, no, 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 Konami are happy. Um, apparently, the brief or the agreed tone is dark comedy, and they referenced Scrubs. <laughs> and I, we were like, this doesn't make any sense. Silent Hill is not Scrubs. This is weird. Um, <laughs> and at some point, a grown-up at Konami kind of looked in and <laughs> realized it was not great to, to push this in the direction of Scrubs. And uh, after me and, and Neil had just been banging on for a while, the, our bosses were like, okay, we're going to give you the project and you can go finish it. Um, but uh, they've already spent most of the money and time. You don't get any more. Like, you just have to finish this thing so no one gets sued. <laughs> and we looked at it and we are like, okay, well, we need to change the whole story, change all the level design, all the monsters, all these things. And... They were like, well, you can't because you haven't got any money or time. So we, we had this fun period of weeks where I went away and rewrote the story in a week, rewrote the script the week later. There wasn't enough time to storyboard it, so I would go home at night, and instead of sleeping, I would draw the storyboards. And then I wanted to redesign all the creatures, and we couldn't do that, so I would go home, <laughs> and I'd redesign all the creatures. And so it was a lot of effort and not sleeping. Um, to pull that game together. And like in the end, it is a thoroughly mediocre Silent Hill game. Like it is a straight six or seven out of 10 Silent Hill game. But like our internal goal was this cannot destroy, like this can't be so terrible it destroys the franchise. And I think our, our metric was like our worst level should only be as bad as the worst level in all the other Silent Hill games, which was easy because there are some very bad levels in Silent Hill 3. Um, <laughs> And, and we're like, and if our best level is like decent, like if our best level people are like, oh, that was cool, then we'll be happy with that. And like, I think the hardest thing we had was that they had already made the CGI intro and outro movies and they'd spent money on those. So we were like, they don't, uh, and they were like, no, you have to keep those because we, <laughs> we paid for them. And we were like, okay, and this main character Again, we were given, the, the main character was this trucker called Travis. And so you have Silent Hill 1, this, this, this Stone Cold classic, which is its own thing. You know, Japan meets Stephen King meets Twin Peaks. And they'd inserted this trucker into the entire mythology of the series because they wanted <laughs> to make it more accessible. Um, <laughs> and, and we were like, we're like trucker, we're like, that sounds more like an Evil Dead kind of thing. And they were like, no, no, no. They were like, it's very Silent Hill. He's a middle class trucker. <laughs> and we, we were like, what, what is a middle class trucker? <laughs> like, he's, he's trucking a for a living, trucker? right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were like, well, you know, his dad was a doctor. And he has daddy issues. And we're like, okay. Um, so we had this opening cutscene. 
And we kind of, we like mashed it up a bit and we added this whole bit of CB radio chat to the front of that to just establish this guy has daddy issues. Um, and then we had this outro cutscene where he fights like a giant demon and, and there's like, like there's this object in Silent Hill 1 that is, I think, is called the Flaros device, and it's a uh, something hedron. But the other team had misunderstood what kind of hedron it was, so it had the wrong number of sides. <laughs> and we were like, this seems like a small detail, but like to the Silent Hill people, this is a big deal. <laughs> so we made them fix that, but we had to keep the weird demon. Um, <laughs> and we did our best with that. And again, we like put, like if you watch it, there's some really bad like ADR'd like voiceover over the end that tries to kind of lampshade what's happening. But it was the best we could do. Um, and then the other thing that we had to do was uh, they were like, oh, pyramid heads in it. And we were like, yeah. Does that work? Does that make sense? We're like, pyramid head wasn't in Silent Hill. It was in Silent Hill 2. And, and he's tied to this other character's story. And it's also something that the fan base is very invested in. Um, and they were like, well, no, we've already had him on a poster. Um, so he has to be in there. And we're like, okay. And we looked at the script, and the original script had the origin story of Pyramid Head. So, you know, Pyramid Head is one of the great characters in video games. He's this very abstract, Freudian thing. There's very little to explain about him. He's, that's the point of him. He's this giant fucking metal pyramid. Um, that does horrible things to people. And in the version we had, where we took over, uh, he, he was a chef <laughs> um, who liked cooking up human body parts. And he was like this cannibal chef. And at some point, starts just nailing bits of metal to his head whilst cooking up human body parts. And there was like, you overheard him in this kitchen going like, I love it when your eyeball pops out. God, something, and, and we were like, Ugh. again, like it's, it's funny, it's a comedy, but <laughs> didn't make sense to us at all, so we begged and begged and begged to remove this character, and we were told, no, he was in the posters. So we did this, yeah, we did the best we could. We, we had like a lampshaded, there was like a diary entry where someone was like, he kind of reminds me of a figure I saw in the historical society in Silent Hill or something. We, we tried to throw it away. <laughs> but yeah, we, so we made that game, uh, and it, and it being mediocre was like a, it's probably of all the things I've done, the greatest achievement. When I think of like what we did in like the six months we had. Um, but you know, to the outside world, it was a mediocre Silent Hill game. Um, but we were very happy that we'd got it that far. So we finished that one. Uh, Konami were pretty happy because they knew what the process had been, uh, but we didn't immediately make another Silent Hill game. We went off and my team worked on uh, a game that never came out called Elvian, which was another job where there was a team in Bratislava who were making this game for a German publisher. And like in Germany, RPGs are huge. Like you just put the word RPG on something and you'll sell a million copies. Um, and they're quite serious about their RPGs. And this was like a very serious game about elves. And their kind of USP, their, their pitch was, this is the elves before the other races existed. And we're like, ooh, that sounds exciting. And they're like, is this like the elves when they were like more primitive and more violent or interesting? And they're like, no, the elves have always been the elves. <laughs> they are the same. And we're like, so this is just like Tolkien, but without all the other stuff. 
I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay, so you've got rid of all the cool stuff and all the other creatures and races and stuff. They're like, um, but we were asked to come in and the game didn't really, it was another one where the game didn't really exist. Like they had great concept art. They had an in-house blacksmith who was building swords. Uh, they had someone that actually spoke Elvish who was writing all the tomes <laughs> for the elves. They had a German fantasy author who had written two books to like go alongside it. Um, but the game itself didn't really exist. Um, so we took it over and were asked to reboot it. And again, like the, in a matter of weeks, I kind of rebooted the story. Um, it's a bit like when you see those things about, you know, where they make a movie because there's a set left over from another movie and they kind of go, oh, we'll, we'll set this in an Aztec temple because we have an Aztec temple. Um, so we had all these character models they'd built and some beautiful environment props. And we just looked to them and invented a story around them. We were like, oh, this guy looks cool. Let's make him like the bad guy. And oh, this temple looks cool. That should be a cool temple. Um, and we wrote this story that was kind of a, a film noir, World War II spy thing. Um, where there was this this muscular brooding elf called Jagger, because um, I wanted to name him after a, a pop star, um, <laughs> and his relationship with this very high class uh, femme fatale elf lady, um, and they do some stuff and kill some people, um, and, it, and it all ends in a very dark way. And we kind of made half of that game. We recorded all of the dialogue. And I got to work with uh, Troy Baker, who at that point was not as big a name as he is now. He was our brooding elf. Um, I remember we recorded this elf sex scene, where it wasn't like it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It wasn't completely a sex scene. It was. Um, it was kind of riffing on. There's a bit in the Big Sleep where Lauren Bacall uh, talks about horse racing to Humphrey Bogart, but she's not talking about horse racing. And. So the, the tutorial when you unlocked the fast travel in this game, which was a griffin, because uh, of what the, how the story works in this game, uh, there's this character, Ursula, who is telling you how to ride a griffin, but she's not talking about riding a griffin. And her son, who has this big kind of Oedipal thing going on, is in the background getting very annoyed. Um, but I remember recording that with Troy and like doing like three or four goes of it and he wasn't really getting it. And I was like, I'm not really getting the sense that this is about sex. And he was like, what? <laughs> this is about sex? He's like, this is a fantasy game. This is a role playing game. I'm like, yeah, this is like a more fun one. Um, <laughs> so we, yeah, we recorded all that and, and kind of got halfway through making that game. And then I think the German company realized that they weren't cut out to make video games. So all that stuff is just like on, in some office somewhere. If that, like this whole thing of like in video games, no one archives anything. It's like, and, and legally you're not supposed to. And even like back then, just have, you know, downloading the whole uh, set of assets for a project was bigger than most kind of easily concealable flash drives. So it wasn't as straightforward to be like, oh, I'm gonna, this project's being shut down, I'm gonna. Take that. I think I have some of the voice recording somewhere. Um, but yeah, so we finished that project. Um, and at that point, we'd been having these conversations with Konami about doing another Silent Hill game. And I think like Sony were really into the idea because they had the PSP and Origins had been on the PSP. And they were like, we want cool games for the PSP. Konami were like, we should do another one. And luckily, uh, the boss of our studio 
took the line of it's not worth the effort. He's like, to make Silent Hill Origins was a lot of pain and it got, it was a straight seven out of 10. I think it was like a 78 Metacritic, which is technically the Metacritic of almost every ambitious narrative game. If you make a narrative video game, often will end up in the 78. Um, but he was like, as a studio, there's, there's no point us making another of these. Because you know, the reviews of, of Silent Hill Origins fairly said this template feels kind of played out you know, these, this is a very, uh, this survival horror formula has got somewhat stayed. Resident Evil 4 has kind of mixed it up. Um, but it, it definitely felt like doing another of those would not be optimal. So he kind of pushed back. Um, and I think there was a call where, because we'd been having discussions as well. I could talk all night about this whole process. But um, at various points, I'd pitched our producer at Konami ideas for making another Silent Hill game. Um, I knew that he had this weird uh, obsession personally with Brahms PD, which is like the police department in Silent Hill. And there's like a character, Sybil, who comes from Brahms PD. And he just loved the sound of Brahms PD. And he's like, I'm going to make a Brahms PD game. <laughs> he would tell me that when he was drunk quite often. Um, so I was like, oh, OK. I'm going to be sly. And I'm going to think of all the cool shit I want to do in a video game. And I'm going to pitch him it as Brahms PD. Uh, so I pitched him this game where you were a cop and it was first person and it was framed by the idea of a psychiatrist speaking to you. So it had this kind of dual layer thing going on and it had all these ideas about how the exploration and your actions would drive the story. Um, and I pitched him that and said, here you go, this is Brahms PD. And he was like, oh, no, 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 I'm thinking like a shooter. He's like, I was thinking a shooter. This was how we make Silent Hill go mainstream. You're a cop and you shoot stuff. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Um, but on, on this call where we were being strongly encouraged to make a PSP game that our studio didn't want to make, uh, at that point, the guy at Konami was like, well, hey, what if we let you make this cool Wii game, because I think it was, we were pitching it as a Wii game. What if we let you make your cool Wii game as well? To kind of sweeten the deal. Uh, so they said yes to that. So at that point we were making another Silent Hill game on PSP and we were making this cool Wii game uh, that I had pitched, which had stopped being Brahms PD and we'd given it another name. It was called Cold Heart, I think, at that point. But it, a lot of the ideas were in there. Um, and so we started, I started to work on that and I had this incredible luxury which you don't normally get where like normally if you're an independent studio and you sign a project, they throw as many people in it as possible because they want to start billing, they want to start justifying this project, they want to start getting the people in the office to actually do some work. So if you're directing or writing and directing a project like that, usually like a project is signed off of like a 10 page document where you've like sketched out the idea and then suddenly you're having to actually write this thing as people are also simultaneously designing combat systems, creating characters, environments um, and so that's like not a fun way to create your story. Um, but on this I was starting to work with Konami on the idea for this Silent Hill game um, whilst they were still kind of figuring out the legal stuff and I think I ended up having around six months 
of kind of grace where I actually, without any complications, got to figure this game out and figure the story out. And there were like interesting bumps along the way. So uh, our producer at Konami, who was um, like this, this was the at this point the producer was the same producer who was behind that original Silent Hill Origins. Like he was not the guy that you wanted to make the creative decisions, but he had a little bit of uh, of eccentricity about him. <laughs> so it's a good way to put it. Yeah. So this was the guy that uh, we're discussing this game, which at this point is called Cold Heart, is an original story in Silent Hill. It has all of the psychology. It has a lot of the ideas I wanted to do. Um, but he looked at me and went, you know what? There's the way things work in Konami, there is a, a database of projects that have been greenlit. And if a project's greenlit by the people in Tokyo, um, then it's, it's real and it's happening. Um, previously, prior to Silent Hill Origins, they had greenlit the idea of doing a remake of Silent Hill 1 and then realized it would be too expensive and stopped doing that. So he said, if we pretend this is a remake of Silent Hill 1, we can actually start billing for it and you can start working on it. So we're like, okay, this is a remake of Silent Hill 1. Uh, so we started thinking about that, but very quickly, I was like, well, the movie has come out and the movie was a decent attempt to take that weird combination of like badly translated Japanese PS1 era graphics and turn it into something that a, a more mainstream audience can understand that actually has like English dialogue and stuff. Um, and you know, people weren't crazy about some of those choices, but it, it did well enough. Uh, we've just made Silent Hill Origins, which for all intents and purposes, atmosphere-wise, gameplay-wise, character-wise, plot-wise, was a rehash of Silent Hill 1. Like, I don't feel like there's a lot of creative kind of space left at all if we call this a remake of Silent Hill 1. So I said, can I just, uh, can I just riff on that and do something more interesting? Um, I think my original pitch was, there's like a bad ending in Silent Hill 1, which I think is the ending that 99% of people got, where you get to the very end of the story and it cuts to black and then shows you the protagonist, Harry Mason, dead in his car. So it's the kind of Owl Creek Bridge twist of like, oh, everything you've just experienced was his kind of dying fever dream. And I was like, so what if, and as well, I as I kind of hinted at earlier, I wasn't a huge fan of Silent Hill 3, which was a beautiful looking game, but I, I didn't like the fact that they kind of rehashed the storyline and, and did some things. So my pitch was, what if we explain Silent Hill 1's bad ending and Silent Hill 3 by saying those were all the collective imaginings of the daughter of Harry Mason who died in a car crash when she was seven? Like, what would that look like? And what if she's now grown up and she is much older um, and so she's the person that's in the therapist's chair? Um, and we kind of built the pitch around that and we said, so actually, like, that story of Silent Hill 1 has characters and names and places that we will revisit here, but they'll be completely different because we'll be seeing the reality or, like, our version of those. Um, and I think around that time, I wasn't watching it, uh, there was like the Battlestar Galactica reboot that basically... Great show. 
it was amazing. I subsequently had to go watch it because we kept talking about it. Um, but yeah, they were like, look, that other show existed. Let's take the kind of very high level idea, character names, and we'll flip some of them and we'll mess around with them. Um, and we said, let's do that. And as someone that was like a fan of Silent Hill 1, I was like, this additionally could be interesting because it's fucking with my memory of that game. It's not like playing a remake where you're like, oh, this is that game I remember, but it's a bit shinier. It's like, oh, I know that next I will go to the high school, but now it's entirely different, and I met this character who I remember from that game, but again, there's this whole twist on it. Um, so yeah, we pitched that, and they were kind of cool with that, as long as when we showed the vertical slice to the top brass in Japan, they would believe it was a remake. So, so like the opening 30 minutes had to not play our hands too hard. Um, but yeah, we, so we started working on that game from this position of strength because we'd actually thought the whole thing through. Um, there was one more fun uh, random step there where, so one of the things that was uh, innovative, I guess, about Shattered Memories was it was one of the first, if not the first, certainly one of the first uh, horror games to not have direct combat in, or one of the games to not have combat in, um, which was something I was fighting for because like that, there's that whole weird thing of the survival horror genre which very directly borrows from zombie movies, um, right? Zombie movies, lots of slow-moving monsters, shotguns, medikits, that kind of survivalist ethos, and a game like Silent Hill had inherited that because that was the gameplay template. But for me, like psychological horror, the influences of Silent Hill, like they weren't zombie movies. They were, it was all in the head and it was the stuff of your nightmares and your darkest, deepest thoughts. So I was like this whole thing of like scavenging for ammo and health packs and beating things with pipes feels off. So I was like, we should, we should do something different. And uh, it was 100% not something we could do we were told. And as well, everyone was like, the thing that we're really excited about in marketing with the Wii Silent Hill is swinging that pipe. They're like, that's the really cool thing you'll be able to do with the Wii, you can swing the pipe. Um, so we were like, no, you, you can't remove the combat. And then that Maverick producer that we had uh, got to Maverick and they let him go. And the night we heard in England that he had been let go in LA, I went in and rewrote all the design documents and removed all the bits that I didn't want to include, got rid of the combat, put all the cool shit in. And then, so then when the producer, the new producer joined, he was like, oh wow, this is very ambitious. He's like, you're, you're changing how combat works, you're doing this narrative thing, you're rebooting a classic, you're doing all these things. Like, you, is that, you, can you do all that? And we were like, yeah, yeah, no, this is cool. We've been working on this for a while. And for those of you who need a refresher, we have a clip of uh, Silent Hill Shattered Memories, oh, too. Thank you. I hated that box art. Nice. That's a bit of a tutorial. So we had this really cool flashlight mechanic because we were using the Wii, so the Wii mode became your flashlight and it led to this very fun, organic way of looking around environments. And we wanted to get rid of 
all of the kind of interface stuff that you'd normally have in a video game. So we didn't pause the action and send you to menus. Everything was done through that cell Daddy, phone. I need you. Again, like I think one of the first games to screw around with cell phones and make that like your whole game interface. And it was really important that the whole world be continuous. So we had no load screens, no kind of... There's this kind of thing of the classic Silent Hills where you go back and forth from the map screen and in your head everything almost became this 2D representation. So we were like, no load screens, everything has to exist. You have these physical, tangible interactions with the environment. When you open a door, you would actually open the door and you could kind of screw around with the door, peek through the door. And I remember there was a higher level producer that was really annoyed that at no point in the game did we make something. There was never a reason why you needed to peek through the door, but it always felt like you should. And they were like, you need to put a reason to peek through the door. And we were like, no, it's like, it's just fun to peek through the door. Hey, it's Caitlin. I am looking at the world's most beautiful prom dress. I am so excited. Mike will be putty in my hands. And yeah, instead of having like tonight. random diary notes everywhere, we were like, oh, okay, well, you're picking up like cell phone messages from the atmosphere. And we made a little gameplay mechanic around that. I would say that uh, of all of the, the Wii games that are kind of like in the ether now, Shattered Memories is definitely Cheryl? an underappreciated gem. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. five people played it. You're OK? Um, I played it, so, so maybe there's yeah. one more of the five out here. Sweetie, and it's, it's one of those Wait that people are like, oh, they should, they should remake it or whatever. And it's like, but it was so specifically tied to the Wii. What? Yeah. Like when you had these phone calls, you? you were receiving them in your hand Cheryl. through the Wiimote, which was like super fun. This was very ambitious at the time, having the world change live in engine as you walked around, rather than fading to black or going to a cutscene. And the settings, the characters, some of the situations would adapt based on your decisions in the game, based on some of the questions you would answer in the psychiatrist uh, sessions, right? Yeah, so like I've had this constant uh, kind of issue, not issue, but like I've, I've never been able to square the idea of the choose your own adventure. Like, and, and, it, and as someone that works in like interactive narrative, like that's the go-to thing. Like people even called her story a choose your own adventure. Um, but I always struggled with the, the kind of classic choose your own adventure. Like I never could get my head around the gymnastics, when you're reading those things or, or kind of playing, especially in a, a video game, that kind of choice paralysis or like the, the gaming of the system. So if I'm given a choice, like will you free the thief that's been caught, right? I'm playing a medieval RPG. There's a, there's a thief who's been caught. Um, will I execute them or free them? And you're like trying to make this choice. And you're thinking like, what would my character do? But then you're thinking, what would I do? And then you're thinking, but what does the game want me to do? You know, in two chapters' time, the family of the thief are going to give me a special sword or something. Or like, I, I was always kind of wrestling with that. Never seemed very elegant to me. But obviously, the fact that a story could warp and change and branch 
is a cool thing about this medium. So Silent Hill Shattered Memories was an attempt to do something different whereby we had this incredibly branching set of story assets. Um, and it was, it was very calibrated. So um, I might meet, uh, there's a character called Michelle. I meet this character, Michelle. And you always meet Michelle in the gym at this high school. Uh, so your character Harry has gone there because it's been the, it's the designated storm center and he's got this missing daughter and there's this big storm so he heads there but it's deserted and Michelle has turned up because there was supposed to be a big high school reunion but the storm has, has meant that no one else has turned up. And you walk into the room and we had a bunch of different versions of Michelle uh, in terms of the performance. So um, it's this slightly kind of off-kilter moment where she's alone and she's singing on stage and doesn't realize you're there and you walk in and see some of it. Um, and we had like a version of her where she was more introverted, where she sat on a stool very much like this one and she sings this very kind of uh, tender a cappella version of uh, Always On Your Mind, the, the classic song. Then there was another version where she kind of walks out on stage and it's the kind of pop idol version, American Idol version. Uh, it's a much sexier, big version. Um, the opening shot of her walking out was different. We had like some versions where she was kind of sexier and we focused on her heels as she came out. Uh, there were like a bunch of different versions and we could kind of combine those. Um, and then the, like the set dressing would change. We could have different versions of set dressing. The lighting could change, the music could change. And was there one specific player decision that shaped that specific uh, situation, or was it like an, an amalgamation of a few? No, so and this was the big thing that was my this was my alternative to choose your own adventure. It was saying we will never have an explicit choice for the player. I'm not going to kick you out of the story by asking you to make a decision. What we're going to do instead is observe everything you do. Uh, so, like in the game, you would speak to a psychiatrist, and he would ask you questions, and those were some of the more overt things. But also. When you walk through the forest, we watch, do you follow the path? Do you go off piste? Um, when you enter a room, do you search through every drawer or do you just kind of motor on? Like, do you pick up your phone and call these characters when you're not with them? Like every single little thing you did in the game, we were tracking and mapping against this profile we had of you that kind of had an idea of your personality, but also thematically what things you were kind of ticking off in the story. And we would use that to generally kind of try and fuck you up more. So like there's a, there's a cop in the game and the first time you meet her, it's the first human you've met in the town. And like plot wise, if you were to chart the plot, it's like here is this guy who's missing his daughter. Uh, the town is abandoned. He sees a light on this building. He goes in. Uh, so he's excited to see a cop and then we need to reverse that and deflate him because the cop is no good and actually he ends up worse than he started. Um, and we would do different versions of that. So if we had the sense that this player's personality means that they have uh, an expectation of authority figures, and this was, like, was all based on like that kind of slightly bullshitty kind of field of like psychometrics, um, their expectation is that a, a authority figure will be dependable and helpful and if that is not the case, it becomes highly stressful that player would walk in and the performance of that cop would be this kind of very kind of sleazy, shitty cop that accuses him of being drunk and questions him. Um, and so we had all these different ways of tweaking 
the individual scenes um, to calibrate things. So like in the, the case of Michelle, we tried to align her with the player's personality so she would be your best friend character. So you could have like an extrovert Michelle in this red dress that comes out onto the stage, but then in the scene that follows you, you break into the principal's office, you could have like the extrovert Michelle who actually uh, is slightly nervous about breaking into the principal's office and kind of combine those two. And so you got these all these different composite versions of scenes and characters and it was all based on every single decision you had made prior to that in the game. So in, you know, it was this kind of rich set of data and constantly everyone was having everything tweaked and filtered so everyone who played that game got a slightly different version, hopefully a version more calibrated to have something happen, make it feel kind of more personal to them. I wanna make sure we spend a nice chunk of time on her story, of course. Um, we have a clip. We can't wait. <laughs> that polystyrene cup. There was someone online bitching about uh, how uh, it was clear that there was no liquid in that cup and that she was faking drinking from it. And she wasn't. And ev between every single take, I made sure that the levels of liquid were correct nice. so that the continuity was there. Nice. Someone still would have people found on that the mistake. Internet. Well, they thought the mistake was there and it wasn't. Ah, gotcha. It's the internet for you. <laughs> So obviously, her story comes out, goes on to win a ton of awards around the world, multiple countries. What was that period of your life like? It was really fun. Um, now, because I had prior to her story, I'd spent three years working on a game after Silent Hill that was this big AAA story thing um, that then got cancelled. Uh, and I'd kind of looked around and gone, oh, I guess no one's making these games anymore. Um, and like a few years prior to that, I'd felt like, oh, there's a career in making these big budget story-driven video games. Um, and it's like, I made Shattered Memories and that was cool. I'm gonna make this other one and then I'll make another one. And when that game was canceled, I kind of looked around and, and this was like when everyone was still in, figuring out free to play, but all the games people knew that 
people were making a lot of money doing that. So they were like, oh, why would I want to make a game that doubles its money or triples its money when I could be making billions, million Clash of Clans or whatever? And the new consoles were on the horizon and the publishers were getting really scared. Like, will this market even exist? Will people still buy consoles? Will people still buy video games? And the budgets were, were getting sillier and sillier. Uh, so, you know, to make a... Uh, you know, a proper single-player story-driven AAA game was going to set you back 25 to $50 million just to make that kind of game. So I, at that point, made the decision to go independent and go make a game for myself and kind of went into the process of making her story very humbly just being like, if I probably am only going to get to make one indie game because I kind of gave myself a year's worth of runway, which was all of our savings whilst my wife continued to work. And so I was like, if I only get to make one indie game, then I'm going to try and do all the things that no one would let me do before. So I had this very pretentious manifesto. Um, it wasn't very long. I think it was like three points. It was like, <laughs> I'm going to make a game about subtext uh, with no... 3D exploration and damn, there's something else. It was, it was like these are my three pillars, uh, and I had pitched several times, uh, like a, doing a police procedural type thing, murder mystery type thing, and publishers would always be very against that idea. They didn't think it made sense in video games, despite it being this evergreen genre in every other medium. Uh, so I was like, right, I'm going to go and make something in the crime space. And I want to push these ideas of, of actually giving a shit about character. And like I'd spent these three years making this very dense character-driven game for a big publisher where, you know, I'd get notes like, oh, this is too subtle. Uh, the character should state what they're thinking. <laughs> I used to get that note a lot. Like, the character should tell us what they're thinking. And I was like, no, that's like bad writing. Um, so I was like, I'm going to do this thing and... I'd come up with the idea of making a game about police interviews because that was like a thing I was really into and the shows I loved had really kind of dug into that world. And so I made her story and kind of every decision I made in making it was, was somewhat naive. Like I was going, this sounds like a cool idea. Like I love this idea. As long as there's a few more people like me, we're golden. Um, and so I kind of made it very much, and, and it wasn't like I knew that I was breaking all of the indie rules because everyone was telling me, like, if you make an indie game, uh, develop it in public, you know, take it to shows, test it in public, build a community around the game during development, all these kind of things that a, a good indie game would do. And I hadn't done any of that, and I couldn't do any of that because, like, it was this very uh, brittle, story-driven thing that, you know, didn't, even exist until I'd finished it. Um, so yeah, when it came out and blew up, uh, it was obviously very exciting and gratifying. Um, the coolest thing was that it, it managed to kind of penetrate a world outside of traditional video games. So you know, up until then, like Her Story was the first game I made that was a digital game. It was the first game where I actually was on it till the bitter end because normally I would get moved off when it was in the final kind of submission process. Um, so, yeah, ha having gone from being told by a marketing person, 
this is what you have to do with the game because in two weeks I have to go pitch the head of sales at GameStop and convince them to put copies of this on a shelf. So like that's the criteria. Here I was like, I'm just going to make this cool thing because I think it's a cool idea. I'm going to make it for myself. Um, but then realizing that when you plug that into the scale of digital distribution, you can find enough people that spark off that idea. And then again, like accidentally creating something that through genre, through the kind of mechanic, through the aesthetics of it, spoke to people outside of traditional video games. So, you know, I remember getting like a double page spread in Le Monde, the French newspaper, and being like, ooh, I bet they don't normally do that for video games. And it was like, and it was just great, because you had, you know, you had the visual of Viva, so people got what that was. You know, in, in, a, in a normal newspaper, you could have a couple of paragraphs explaining, here is this woman, did she murder her husband? And, and their audience would get it. They wouldn't freak out in the way that, you know, even now, like if you want to write about video games in the mainstream press, it's probably about how Fortnite is ruining our children or something. Um, so that was, I think, yeah, that was the coolest thing. Um, but it was weird. I remember there was, a <laughs> there, was a very <laughs> there was a point where enough time had passed that all of the award shows were done. <laughs> I'd done all of the award shows and it was the next year's worth of award shows and it was the first award show where I wasn't nominated for anything and I just instinctively was like oh that's a bit mean like <laughs> why haven't they nominated me and then so yeah it, it can mess with your head <laughs> obviously now her story is four years in the past um, it's it's perhaps the game that most people know you by um, as sort of like a, a closing remark on the Her Story story, um, what was the number one emotion you were hoping players would feel as they finished the game, and do you think it achieved that? That's a good question. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you two answers. Uh, so there was the what, and I, can't, I don't even know if I can put it into words, which is why I had to make the game, but early on when I had the idea I remember um, I created this prototype where I found uh, these online transcripts from these real interviews with this guy that killed his parents. And I didn't know why or how he had killed his parents. Um, and I plugged this real-life transcript into the format of her story and played it um, and found myself like picking up on words he was using, realizing that, that this subtext was there, understanding that like a human being that is trying to lie, also at the same time is desperately trying not to lie. Um, you know, all that fun stuff that you would have as a homicide detective and, and understanding how people talk when they're under pressure. And I just remember the feeling of using his words to kind of navigate through his testimony, slowly piecing together this story through his subtext. Um, and, and the intoxicating freedom that came with the not being any boundaries. This wasn't a scripted piece of video game design. This was just like, this was the shit the kid actually said. And I remember feeling like, oh, like I've never had that experience in a video game before. Like that combination of the freedom, the something about the natural language, the something about digging into his testimony that just like I've never had that feeling in a video game and it feels really cool. And I was like, okay, that... Like, that gave me the confidence to go make the game. Because I was like, if I can do that or get close to that, that will be a cool experience for people. Um, and then I think when I was actually then making the game and started to build the story, 
there was this arc that I went through where, like, initially, uh, you know, the pitch to myself was like, oh, you're a detective, you're trying to solve a murder. I always wanted to be a detective. Um, like, I literally did, after university, look into becoming a detective. And turned out, like, in England, you had to do two years of beat policing. And I was, like, I'm far too, <laughs> far too weak a young man to actually go out on the streets and do any of that. Um, but as I started to research, I spent a lot of time researching that game and just reading up about the process of, of these homicide interviews and I was watching a lot of footage and I watched a lot of footage of like the Jody Arias case from over here uh, and was thinking a lot about uh, women who murder and, and how that's very different to men who murder and all the reasons behind that. That led me down this whole rabbit hole where I was thinking about the women in my family, especially like my grandmother's generation, who I'd never like really dug into their lives. Like these kind of uh, you know Northern English grandmothers, so we never really had like very deep conversations about their lives. But they'd lived these super fascinating, interesting lives, um, and I'd recently lost them. So I was kind of thinking about watching these women in these police interrogations and it essentially becomes this the, the story of their life is what comes out um, with the detective and I was watching them and thinking like that process of listening and hearing someone's life like I wish I could have done that with my grandparents and I was thinking about their roles as women in England in the previous century um, and at that point I kind of had, had gone on this this arc where I'd shifted from caring about the detective and that being the POV to actually, like the whole thing was about this woman and her story and, and the idea of calling it her story and the idea that you never hear the questions asked by the police. So everything in that game is her words and, and she kind of narrates her own story. Um, what I hoped and what a lot of people related was that in playing the game, you kind of get bought in by this hook that is like, oh, I'm gonna be a detective, I'm gonna solve a murder. and at some point, you kind of solve the murder. You kind of know the ABC of it. And at that point, you just have lots more questions and curiosity about this woman's life. And then it becomes this kind of very gothic character piece and this kind of character portrait. Um, and that's, for me, like the meat of the game. Um, so yeah, people have that same experience and we've won. And just to close out our, our Her Story segment, uh, we tracked down a video on BuzzFeed um, where they hired a private investigator to play through the game. So we wanted to play a quick clip of that. I actually saw a spike in steam sales because of this. Oh, nice. It <laughs> doesn't happen that often. You have nothing. And all these stories we've been telling each other, just that. Stories. That's BuzzFeed's music, not mine. I was going to say. Welcome to another episode of ProPlay. My name is Steve Morrow. I'm a private investigator and I'm the owner of Morrow Detective Agency located in Simi Valley, California. Private investigator is one who is hired by either the public or by attorneys to go out and help folks figure out whatever their problems are. It can be anything from cheating spouses to children that have absconded, people that have been wrongfully charged of crimes. Whatever it is, we're the people that you call in order to try to help you figure out what the problem this is. This guy's notepad ready. Hopefully get you a resolution to it. <laughs> From my understanding, this particular game is about looking through footage and seeing where the evidence and where the statements that people make will lead you. I've worked similar cases. One comes to mind of a case that had to do with armed robbery. I looked through 50 hours of footage to see whether or not my 
clients had a gun. My strategy got 50 this hours particular game is to be as attentive as possible. I'm also going to see if people's facial features are, are giving their expressions, are giving anything away. I will be taking notes here. Let's see how it goes. I actually briefly clicked on this and saw that everyone was giving Steve all sorts of shit. They were like, they were questioning no. Steve's ability as a detective. No way. Yeah. The whole game is about me searching terms and it looks like there's a term for a, of murder for me to look into. So let's see where this takes us. Okay, I'm looking at four videos of murder. Let's go ahead and click on the first one and see what happens. You think it's murder? I mean, clearly it's murder. What can I do to help? And this is 627. <laughs> 1994. Yeah, that's me. But, February, I mean, that was months ago. What's that got to do with Simon's murder? Really? Yeah, and that's, that's maybe I'm going the, the wrong police way here. Uh, soccer club. June 27, 1994. Because she spills now a drink and they go and find her something to put January on. January 7, 1994. Designed the logo and everything. So I wrote Simon February 1994, or at least this particular interrogation had taken place on January 7, 1994. So the sequence is a little bit off. I didn't murder Simon. You've got it wrong. You've got the wrong person. All right, I want to make sure that we have time for telling lies, so we'll send that clip around afterwards. He's, he's really into the dates. I spent very little time thinking about the dates on that one. Um, <laughs> and there are some people who figured it all out, and there's like a couple of scenes where like she says something, and then the next clip is four seconds later, and everyone's like, oh, four seconds isn't enough time for XYZ to have happened. Like, oh, this is deliberate. This is a deliberate error to make us question what's happening. Mm. And it wasn't a deliberate error, but. <laughs> He's a great detective, we can tell. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I quickly want to touch on um, war games, of course. Uh, we can, let's play the quick clip for that one. Can I say something before we have a giant misunderstanding? What exactly is there to understand? At the counter, you're out there chatting on your phone. In your breaks, you're back here fooling around and I don't even know what, hacking? And you think it's gonna make the situation better when you're insulting a customer? You need a reality check here, Kelly. Look, it shouldn't come as a surprise when I say that this isn't working out. You're firing me? Amazing. Well, I'm gonna be broke now, but at least I won't have to listen to your cheeseball playlist anymore. And so, that's your hobby? Toes? You're pushing it, Kelly. No wonder we can't wear flip-flops on the job. Get out, now! There was a big revelation right. earlier about his particular Stop. fetish. <laughs> Stop. 
This is actually me playing Gone Home here. Because <laughs> the, the actress wasn't a big video gamer, and I was like, I don't like it when people play video games in movies, and it's wrong. So I had to do it all. Of all games you could pick to be inside of the game, I think Gone Home was a good choice. Oh, it was a deliberate effort to troll certain people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so quickly on, on War Games, obviously, um, post her story, uh, you're now working with Echo on this game. What was that experience like now having a lot more resources, uh, a, a much larger team, um, a platform that is dedicated for um, interactive storytelling like this? Um, did that make the process harder or easier? It was, it was like it was a fun experiment. Uh, it was kind of like round two of me figuring out my relationship with Choose Your Own Adventures. Because, um, yeah, Echo is uh, in the same world as, as things like uh, Netflix just put out Bandersnatch. It's that idea of what if your TV show was interactive um, and the natural place to go there is, is Choose Your Own Adventures um, as and like Bandersnatch, I think did that and broke that um, by being so meta and caught up in that whole thing. Um, so no one else can do that now. Um, but yeah, when I was brought in to look at Echo stuff, um, and I was kind of consulting on a bunch of projects, and they had a number of pilots that they were developing. And we said, oh, why don't I direct one of their pilots so I can kind of get a sense of, of their tech. Um, and with War Games, I wanted to dig back into that idea from Shattered Memories of having a densely branching narrative without the explicit choice. Um, and as well, there was like a little bit of, of like a, a thought experiment of if in 10, 20 years, interactive TV shows are mainstream and are just part of our general media diet what will they look like? And my kind of guess was that aspect of the kind of uh, foregrounded choice, the idea that your story would stop whilst you're given an overt choice on behalf of the protagonist expressed through text um, that you would then click and then the story would continue. Like that clunkiness either will go away in the way that you know, just with craft, like if you look at a movie from now versus a movie from 1920, like the level of craft and execution, our movies look like movies, their movies look like stage plays. Um, either we will have smoothened those things out and we will have this more organic structure or we will just be used to that stuff. And that actually, you know, choices appearing on screen will be like camera cuts. You know, the audience today is far more accustomed to camera cuts than they would have been in the, the kind of early days of cinema. Um, and kind of I went with the idea of we will have got rid of the overt choices. Now obviously uh, these future TVs are probably detecting our gaze and our blood temperature and smell, you know, they, whatever they're doing um, to make their decisions. We didn't have that tech, so we went with the idea that if we um, gave people this story that was being told, and it was about teenage hackers um, and it was being told through all these different screens and you could choose to look at different screens to focus in on a particular character or moment um, that we could use that to drive the story. So like across the course of the pilot that we made, 
like the, the character there, Kelly, she has a bunch of different friends and the different friends have different personalities. They have different kind of takes on what it means to be a hacktivist. To, based on like what you're watching, what stuff you found interesting within these episodes, we kind of steered the whole thing. So it was, and it was a constant battle because um, it ended up being, rather than one of a series of pilots, it ended up being like the only, or one of two pilots that came out. So it was also proving the tech. Um, so kind of towards the end, people wanted to foreground the choices <laughs> more, despite us having kind of kept them secret. Um, but it was, yeah, and it was, it never really found its audience, because um, I think like MGM and, and Echo made this thing. I don't think MGM really knew what this thing was. They were like, oh, we should do something cool in digital. Could we do a VR thing? <laughs> no, let's do this thing. Um, and as well, like when I pitched it, I was like, this is not, I'm not making this for people that liked her story. This is not something for anyone that has any awareness that I exist. Like what I loved about War Games, the original movie was, especially rewatching it, like this was a movie about hacking and the protagonist was just this cool, likable kid. He wasn't the kind of dark emo hacker that we have on our screens now, the kind of cliche of what a hacker looks like. And actually my experience of like the hacking world um, is that it's far more colorful and varied and fun and sociable and the sense of community is really strong. So I was like, I would love to go make a show that takes Matthew Broderick's character from the original movie, who is this likable, funny, personable guy. Let's translate that. So we're gonna make this fun show about hacking and hacktivists for like teenagers and we will give them this interesting framework that is very passive. Like I was happy to call that a show, not a game. There was kind of lots of questions with her story of whether you should call it a game or not. Um, you know, with war games, you can sit and watch an episode and not touch the keyboard and it will continue. Uh, you know, with her story or telling lies, if you don't touch the keyboard, nothing happens. So for me, like the idea was here, it's, it's a show which requires a very low level of commitment from the audience, but has this fun, organic interaction, which will actually give you quite a densely personalized kind of story. Um, but it doesn't really kind of hand wave that, um, which is definitely an acquired taste, especially if you're the people funding it. You're like, so we, we shot eight different versions of this scene and they don't know that they just got something special. And they're like, well, no, it's, it's nice that they got their own version of the scene. <laughs> well, well, that brings us to the present. So, um, Telling Lies, your next game. Uh, let's take a look at the trailer. Shotgun. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, but the truth. Oh my God! Wake up. Still there. <laughs> Gotta have the little sting at the end. Yeah. 
We've gone non-linear. We've gone non-linear. <laughs> Is it still happening? <laughs> um, all right, telling lies. Spiritual successor to her story. Um, how is it a spiritual successor? Is there anything direct that connects the two games? So after I made her story, I didn't want to immediately do another her story, um, despite I think my accountant would have said it would have been slightly knock out another two or three of them. <laughs> and there's definitely a thing of people who are like, oh, I'd love to just have another, just like another, it's a different person in the chair. Have a different person in the chair, it's another thing. Just do another one. Um, but like usually I get excited about a project because of some kind of uh, structural thing, some quirks, so, you know, it, with, with shadowed memories, it was like, oh, we're gonna tell this psychological story through the frame of this psychiatrist and we're gonna have this organic interface and then everything emerged from that. With her story, it was saying, look, I'm gonna do a crime story without 3D navigation and sub with subtext, what does that look like? Um, and then, you know, the structure of the game kind of solidifies and then I go and hang a story on it. Um, so I didn't want to do like a straight sequel necessarily. Um, and I allowed some time to pass and enough time had passed that I was able to kind of look back at her story and look at all the decisions I'd made naively, like, you know, all these decisions where I was like, this feels like a cool thing to do. I will do it like this. And and then with more of a kind of grown-up <laughs> stance, be like, oh, is that interesting? Why did the game work? What was interesting about the game to me now from this distance? Um, and kind of decided that like, oh, th there's some really interesting stuff that I find interesting about her story and I could do a lot more of that. So I was really interested in the idea, and this was kind of semi-conscious thought when I was making it, like I'd made, um, you know, I'd made a couple of Silent Hill games, and Silent Hill games are these games that are deeply atmospheric. You are immersed in this world that you explore. Um, but a lot of the story is told through these little notes that you find, right, um, that, that tell the real story. And a lot of games are like that. So like the Bioshock series is like that. You are in a ruined world. The evidence of the ruin is around you. But if they need to specifically tell story, they're going to give you an audio log. And uh, Gone Home had come out. And Gone Home was a direct kind of uh, successor to the Bioshock series in that they'd gone, right, let's take that. We'll remove all the combat and all the gamey stuff, but cling still to this idea of the deep immersion in a 3D space, the atmosphere, and then these little diary notes that are lying around. Um, and I, I, having made, like, like Shattered Memories was my love letter to the immersive sims, to these games with the, the kind of deep immersion in a 3D space, to the atmosphere. Um, and I knew that, like, to tell a story, it's, like, really nice structure to lean back on. Just have to write these little diary pages and sprinkle them around in a slightly non-linear way and you're telling your story and it's very nice. Um, but I felt quite deeply that the, the immersion you get in the 3D space is almost like a prop that we lean on. Um, so one of the questions I asked when making her story was like, what if you took Gone Home and like the bits that actually made me want to cry and Gone Home were the audio pieces of audio that played when you read the diaries, which actually wasn't in their original design. Originally, they were like, this is going to be a very pure 
it's, it's, we won't have all these contrivances. You'll find diary pages and you'll read them. And then they realized it wasn't resonating. So they added in, when you read the diary, you would hear the voice of the character reading it. Um, and that was the stuff that was affecting to me. And so I was like, well, the thing that's actually making me feel something is the human performance, which is the thing I love anyway and, and feels integral to a lot of these character-based stories. What if I throw out the 3D exploration? And what if all of those exploration verbs are applied to the story itself? So in some level, her story is going, what if you take the audio diaries and that is your level design? Mm. Uh, so, you know, you are exploring them and you... Um, like, there is a, a sense of mastery that you would have in a game like Metroid, where when I play Metroid, the longer I play it and I backtrack through the different areas, I become familiar with them, I learn shortcuts, I gain some powers which allow me to kind of further take shortcuts. When you are playing her story on something like Telling Lies, like, you become familiar with the story itself, and you have this growing mastery of the story. You learn names, places, ways of navigating through that story. Um, so looking back at her story, I was like, I like how it, to some extent, delivered on that idea. And so with Telling Lies, I was like, I, but I think I can do a lot more. Um, so Telling Lies is kind of like Zelda Breath of the Wild to like Zelda Link to the Past or Ocarina of Time. And then it's like, I wanted to really go to town on, on the thing that was so exciting about her story was the freedom to immerse yourself in this story, but but let your curiosity lead you in whatever direction. And there was no hand-holding, there was no cheating. Like if you typed a word, it would take you to the place where that word was used. Um, so I wanted to build on that. Um, and the thing, what the other thing I loved about her story was, a lot of people called it an interactive movie. And it seemed to me that it wasn't very movie-like. It was in many ways the opposite of a movie. Um, you know, if a movie is a series of images that have been chosen specifically to tell a story that the director wants to tell, here you were choosing the order in which you saw the images, and the images themselves um, in her story were not, like it was not 100% um, visual storytelling. It was performance, like what Viva does on screen is half of the story, but I was not using um, the tools of cinema and, you know, the, the way that that works. Um, so I wanted to double down on that and really interrogate what is fun about videoed performance? What is fun about immersing yourself in filmed performance? And there was um, there's this wonderful piece that I love by Sam Taylor Johnson of uh, when she was, before she became a movie maker and she was a, a young British artist, she made this piece called David, which was, uh, I think it was like two hours of David Beckham sleeping in his hotel room and she just films David Beckham asleep in his hotel room uh, and this was you know projected on the wall of a gallery and you could walk in and watch David Beckham sleeping and he's a very handsome man and um, like he's very handsome and it's very boring because nothing happens he's just sleeping but at the same time that forces you to almost lean in closer and you also have that this whole interesting thing of like the act of watching someone sleep is a very special and personal thing. Like, you know, normally if you're in a position to watch someone sleeping, that implies some intimacy, some some kind of uh, connection. Um, so this was like a really interesting piece. And the thing I was interested in was like, sh she could make that 
artwork and have it exhibited in a gallery and maybe post it on her website. But, you know, if it was a conventional piece of narrative, you couldn't insert that texture. You couldn't have an hour of David Beckham sleeping. You couldn't have... Well, I mean, famously, uh, in the, new, the latest series of Twin Peaks, you had four minutes of someone sweeping, and, and that was enough to, to almost murder some members of the audience. Uh, but I loved that texture. And this idea of the agency that the player has in, in something like her story in Telling Lies, they can choose to watch or not watch. And um, there's a huge focus in Telling Lies. Um, the clips that we have are way longer. You have these whole conversations that can be like 15 minutes long. And you have this beautiful analog scrubbing mechanic. So um, like in her story, you'll find a clip by searching for a word. So you might type the word love. Um, but what happens here is it drops you in at the point where that word is said. So you type love, you, the, there's a scene with uh, Carrie's character where she says love you and then hangs up. End of clip. So you get dropped into that and you're like, huh. And then you can, oh, you can scrub backwards and see what happened preceding that. Um, and it's, it's this really fun kind of uh, anachronistic analog scrub. So you can't just skip to the start of a, of a clip. You have to travel back through it, which in my head is analogous to like going off down a pathway in Zelda or something. Um, and it means in some cases you actually find yourself watching scenes backwards and that was enough. You like understood what was happening. You can discover stuff. So in the same way that like in Zelda, you might see a mountain and you spend five minutes walking and you crest the mountain and then you find this cool little thing, this cool little pool or whatever. There are scenes where like there's this one scene with like seven minutes of Logan uh, washing his dishes. Um, and you know, you can choose to scrub through that and then maybe discover some huge shift or some interesting thing. You know, a, a scene might start in this emotional mode and then suddenly like boom, something blows up and you discover those things and it becomes interesting or like that David Beckham texture when it's your choice to watch it suddenly becomes the most interesting thing if you know when Logan is washing his dishes what is happening in his character's life at that point which might be something you don't initially know but you kind of piece together and if you know what is on the other side of the screen that he's looking at suddenly those few minutes of him walking around his apartment are like absolutely dripping with subtext and performance. And it's super interesting as a player to be scrutinizing that and spying on that moment. And a lot of that comes from the choice to make that decision to watch it, the discovery you've made. So yeah, really telling lies is, is digging into that. And so the connection is the, the core framework is similar to her story. If you liked the freedom of her story, if you liked the way it used language as this kind of navigation, then you'll like that. But I basically tried to change enough things that it felt like a cool, fresh, new idea to me, but just keep enough things that if I said to people, this is a spiritual successor to her story, they'd be like, oh, I get it. Like, I enjoyed that, I will enjoy this. And you know, the genre is different. Like I, yeah, I, the last few months have been terrifying because I've read a, a few people have talked to me about her story or I've read pieces about her story. And when people start saying, this was the thing I really loved about her story, I'm like, oh shit. Like, <laughs> that was one of the things I threw out. Oh no, it's gonna be a disaster. Um, but yeah it's, yeah, it's not her story too. It, it has no plot connection, but um, I really felt like I wanted to just really 
dig further into that. And like War Games actually was a, a cheat in some ways in that I got to play around with having a larger crew and figure out how do you film stuff that is supposed to be taking place through these different cameras and devices. And we kind of, by the end of War Games, I was like, oh, now I know what's interesting about this. Like, oh, if we can enable the actors to be filming this stuff in as real a way as possible, uh, if you know you see a character speaking on a cell phone, if that is, is pretty close to reality, the actors have this extra limb, this extra bit of body language they can use so that, you know, when I was uh, kind of touring her story, I spent a lot of time FaceTiming my family, which also inevitably probably led into this. Um, and there's, you know, that beat before I FaceTime my wife where I'm like getting into position and making sure I'm in the good light. And like, what is that opening body language? And then as the call progresses and my wife tells me that something awful has happened to my kids, this isn't, I'm inventing this. Um, something awful happened to my kids whilst I was <laughs> showing her story. You would detect suddenly the shift in body language. I might sit down, the way I speak to the screen would be very different. So you have this whole extra thing um, that becomes just one more kind of part of the texture. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. Um, but before we go, I wanted to give a quick rapid fire round of questions. So You've been looking forward to this. Oh yeah. I've been, I've been dying to get here. All right. What was the last game that you completed? Oh, God. Um, that's bad. Um, <laughs> oh, it would, uh, it would have been uh, probably Super Mario Odyssey with my son. That's not too bad. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite game of all time? Uh, A Mind Forever Voyaging by Infocom. All right. Go check it out, Steve Moretzky. Uh, one of the first open world city games. It's a text game. Uh, and you use the act of witnessing as your core game mechanic. It's a classic. Hmm. What game do you absolutely despise? Oh, you're not supposed to say negative things in public. You got to answer. Oh, man. Uh, Just pick one uh, of your own if you need to. What was that game uh, where you drove vehicles around and there was an angry clown? Twisted Metal. Yeah, I just didn't like the vibe <laughs> of that game. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> it just seemed to be trying so hard to be fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what inspires you the most? Uh, what inspires me? Um, damn. Um, <laughs> uh, usually, uh, I don't know, it's little bits of stories about the amazing things that people have managed to live through. I don't know, that's a terribly woolly answer. <laughs> All right. What sentimental objects do you have on your desk or in your office that you think of fondly? I have, actually, uh, when I went indie, my wife bought me uh, this, uh, this notebook that's uh, crocodile skin and gold leaf on the pages as like this, oh, now you're going, you can use this notebook to make your wonderful things. Uh, but I could never, I never dared write in it because it was so expensive <laughs> and so beautiful that I didn't want to screw up and mess up the pages. <laughs> and I eventually did and I've written like three pages in it and yeah, but it's still on the desk and I feel, not, I feel good about it, but uh, I've never used it really. What's your favorite curse word? It would be fuck or motherfucker, I think. All right. Be in there. What do you do to stay focused on your work? 
Um, I do transcendental meditation and uh, I try and do as little work as possible, which doesn't always, but there's, there's this fantastic, um, and he's becoming slightly old and racist now, but like John Cleese, bef- maybe he always has been, I don't know. I think as, as you get older, if you're a successful white man, you just get bad. <laughs> um, uh, but he gave this talk about creativity, which you should check out, it's really good. But uh, he had read that you can only really focus on something for an hour and a half. And so his method was to do all his shit in the morning, give himself an hour and a half with no disturbances, and then stop, and then go off and do some other shit, and then do another hour and a half later in the day. Um, So he would only do three hours work in a day, but would be massively more productive. And I did that for her story. That was like, when I started out making her story, I was like, not only am I gonna do the things differently in terms of the game, but like how I make it is gonna be way better than the shit I had to go through making (laughs) video games for a bigger company. Um, so yeah, what's your biggest failure? I feel bad that that uh, that big uh, AAA game got cancelled after three years. It was kind of inevitable. I think no, I think everyone knew it was never going to come out. Uh, but it was a huge team, and we had this huge, super wonderful team. Uh, we spent a year doing motion capture. That's where I met Viva. Actually, she was one of the actors on it. Uh, so I feel bad for all the other people who worked on that because we put in a lot of effort and did loads of really cool shit and it never came out. And as the figurehead of the project, I don't think if I time traveled, I could have made it turn out differently, but I feel bad. <laughs> Define success in one word. Um, people sending you nice emails about... So emails. Yeah, emails, emails with like pictures. Like I went, there was the whole thing with her story where people would send me photos of their notebooks and stuff that they had done, and that was awesome. Um, when people asked me for my physical address so they could send them to me, I was like, just, just send me a photo. Fair enough. Uh, what are you most proud of? Um, outside of my family, my children, and my marriage. Um, uh, I guess at this point in time, it would be her story. I'm hoping it will be telling lies if everyone likes it. <laughs> Fair. And then finally, give one word of advice to other game developers. One word. One word. Just one word. One Jesus. word. Jesus. Um, uh, this can't not sound pretentious. <laughs> I can't <laughs> Whatever wait. Whatever I say. Um, <laughs> I want to say imagine, but that really does sound pretentious. <laughs> all right, we'll take imagine. Um, all right, well, thank you so much to Mr. Sam Barlow. Let's give him a round of applause. We are extremely late, so thank you, everybody, for hanging a little bit late. Um, we can take, let's say, two questions quickly. Um, Evangeline's right back there. She can run around with the microphone. One of the pieces of advice I would give game designers is to always do things in threes. Hmm. So we should try and fit three. We'll do three then, fine. Two's really awkward. (laughs) I can't eat just two cookies. I have to have three cookies. Yeah, yeah. So you touched on this a little bit, but um, when you think about what makes games different from other sort of traditional storytelling media, can you maybe talk about some other games that you've seen that have approached sort of narrative and storytelling in a way that is so radically different 
than sort of other more traditional media, and in a way that really embodies what makes a game a game and not a book or a movie or a film. And I'll do this concisely, right? <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I, uh, what pops into my head is, uh, this is a horrible spoiler, um, there's a beautiful moment in Kentucky Route Zero. Is that how you say route? Or is it route? route. You say route? Someone told me it was route. And I was I like, it really? depends on what part of the country you're okay. in. Maybe in Kentucky it's route. Okay. So let's say Kentucky Route Zero, uh, where uh, a scene takes place and you see your character walking around and speaking to some people and then like the dialogue choices come up, which is very conventional. Uh, and it does this beautiful thing where the dialogue that comes up is actually somebody the next day interviewing the person you're talking to, asking them what happened when that dude came up to you. And so you have this two or three layers of removal from the protagonist you're supposed to be controlling. And it's just like so interesting. And I just, I dig any game that interrogates beyond the basic, like what does it mean to be controlling a protagonist? Like who is the protagonist of this? Um, I had like a post-it note on my desk when we made Shattered Memories that said the player is not the protagonist. Um, which for me is like the most interesting moments I've had in games have been, um, I think Emily Short, who writes brilliantly about interactive storytelling. There was a game, um, some kind of fantasy, comedy fantasy game, and there was a bit in it where the main hero, who is a barbarian warrior, um, is about to sleep with a beautiful, I'm guessing prostitute, because it's like kind of fantasy world. Um, but you, the player, know that she's actually an evil bee creature disguised as a woman. But because it's more narratively interesting to have him sleep with the evil bee creature, you tell him to do that as the player. And so it's very clear that you are not acting in his own interests. You're not acting in your own, uh, as you would in that scenario. You are acting on behalf of you as the person experiencing a narrative. Um, so like for me, really interesting interactive narrative is, is stuff that understands that fundamentally, yes, we embody ourselves in the protagonist. Yes, there is empathy with the protagonist, but there is this distance. There is that space between me and what's on screen or me and the character in a book that creates narrative. And I think what's really interesting in video games is that we can do a bit more with that. We can really play around in that interesting space. All right, next question. Right here in the front. Um, uh, so I'm a student, I'm not really a professional yet. So, I, so the interactive um, storytelling with with the game basically adjusting according to the player's choice is this something that the po um, the professionals in the industry are already catching on, or is it something that you think is uniquely that you have uh, uniquely to you basically? I mean, I think the. It's in, like the the state of storytelling in video games now, since like, and how that's different to when I started. It's it's ridiculous. Like, you know the you know the dumbest shooter now will have three or four writers, and will have a story structure to it, and will you know it's there's an expectation of of story, and endemic to video games is this idea of a story that branches and reacts, and I think the the kind of the secret knowledge that everyone who works in video games has is that none of these branching stories actually branch. Like, and there's this weird, that's one of the biggest tensions uh, is 
the promise that is sometimes marketed is you can do anything, the story will go in any direction, it will be the holodeck from Star Trek. And everyone working on these things knows that nothing works like that and that it's not actually that interesting. I mean, the, I've worked on some choice stuff that hasn't come out where there was a far more dynamic kind of web of actions. Uh, so like Shattered Memories, the core spine of the story is the same. Uh, this character goes on a journey and gets to here and discovers this big secret. Um, but every single moment on that journey was calibrated differently. So for me, the model that is the closest to what I do is... Uh, when you look at like a stand-up comedian, right? A stand-up comedian will tour their material. They actually have a very rigid script that they've rehearsed. But when they show up in Texas and they go out on stage, they will make a joke that is about the local sports team and they'll get a laugh and they've done a little bit of research. And as they're going through their routine and they tell a particularly risque joke and it doesn't get as big a laugh as it did last night or somewhere else, mentally they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to skip that really dirty joke later and I'm going to come back around. And they kind of have this dialogue with the audience. And, you know, the audience in a stand-up comedy show, all they can do is laugh. Um, whereas we have an audience that is pressing tons of buttons, is making choices, is doing lots of things. So for me, that's the interesting thing. And what I did with Her Story and Telling Lies was, was even less traditional in that I took a static story and removed a lot of it and gave that over to the imagination of the player, um, which is why I said imagine, because for me, like the understanding the fundamental to storytelling is the act of imagining, is the player's imagination. Even if I'm watching a movie on the screen, if I'm reading a book, if I'm playing a video game, the most interesting and useful parts of that story are happening in my imagination. And so when you are designing a video game or an interactive story, realizing that everything you're doing is really feeding that imagination is, is, is suggesting things and, and fueling the engine that is the imagination. Thank you. One more question. Go for it. Uh, I, I was noticing a, a trend in a lot of the work that you've done where you like to mess with your players. You don't want to give them a power fantasy. You don't want to like make them feel awesome for doing what they're doing. You have this kind of slightly insidious approach to your player base where you want to torture them. Um, and I was curious if you could elaborate a little bit on what you see your relationship being to your players and how you interact with them when you design. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, definitely uh, when I remember uh, a very memorable conversation with the CEO of a games company, and he said to me, Sam, you're not making games for yourself. You're making games for, I think he said Arsenal man, which, is, is a derogatory term in England. Um, you know, so so just because you think something's fun doesn't mean it is fun and, and don't listen to your heart. And I thought that was the opposite of the truth. I thought that was a terrible idea. Um, and and so hearing marketing people be like, oh, this, this game, you know, in a vacuum we're designing this game to be aspirational and the protagonist should be, like I, that Krusty Demons game uh, <laughs> we were making... 
was aimed at teenage boys and we were told that teenage boys love these things and so at one point there was a mechanic in the game where you could win a girlfriend in the game through performing stunts on a motocross bike. It was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the game I was working on that was being can that was cancelled, uh, was, uh, it was an action-adventure game and there was a requirement that there be lots of empowering combat, that you be this superhero character. Um, so we started you for the first 30 minutes in the body of an atheist priest um, who's very cynical about the world, knowing that it would actively frustrate the people who were like, when do I get to like kill shit and, and be the cool guy from the box art? But, but I, I think a lot of that comes from, like I take a lot of lessons from Hitchcock and what he did in film. And like even, you know, there's the, uh, the, the piece of writing advice, right? Of like, kill your darlings. And I think like, as a storyteller, there is this push and pull where you're asking people to fall in love with characters and then you're doing horrible things to them. Like if you're trying to invest people and their imaginations in your story, you want to surprise them and you want to not stress them out, but like you want to apply pressure in ways that forces them to push back. So I think, I constantly think of the relationship between me and the theoretical player as being not adversarial, but like there is this dialogue, there is this push and pull. So if they're doing something, I want them to be doing it for a reason that then allows me to maneuver out the way and, and, and push back, right? Uh, so that, yeah, it's, so there's a deep love between me and my theoretical player, but there is definitely an element where I'm trying to keep them engaged by giving them this, this kind of friction, this push and pull. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you again to Mr. Sam Barlow. Let's hear it for him, everybody. Thank you to Betaworks for hosting us tonight. Um, we will be uh, back in two weeks during E3 week to host an event on the state of games here in New York. And uh, of course, we announced our Play NYC convention coming up in August. So check out playcrafting.com and play-nyc.com for all of those details. We hope to see you back. Thanks again for coming tonight.